All right, everybody. Welcome to the Proof of Words podcast. I'm, as always, your hope, uh, host, Pat. And today uh, we have author uh, and frequent writer Mark Hunter, who has graciously been able to join us on the show. Mark, if you would be so kind, why don't you give a quick introduction to yourself? Yeah. Hi, thanks for having me. Um, so, yeah, I've been a writer and ghostwriter of all different disciplines for about 20 years. Uh, fell down the crypto rabbit hole in 2017. And uh, it was a nice little combination of the two. So I started doing some writing for a few projects, a few blockchain projects at the time. And that led into kind of crypto journalism. And then that spiraled into books and other things. And it's just, uh, yeah, it keeps keeps growing and growing, to be honest. <laughs> I mean, it's kind of interesting to see oh, how many people that come from just a traditional writing background have been able to really make it in crypto. I mean, it really has established itself as an industry more based around content uh, than probably just about mm. any other, or at least any other that I'm familiar with. Now, on that note, you have a new book coming out, Ultimate Catastrophe. Uh, mm -hmm. This is a book about Mt. Gox. And I think that this is very important, especially for this time that we're currently in in the crypto markets because we're just now getting to the cusp of what might be the tipping point for mass adoption in Bitcoin and crypto. I finally believe that we're almost there. We have the BlackRock ETF, which yesterday kind of got approved and then not approved. Uh, we'll dive into that maybe later <laughs> in the show. Um, yeah. I mean, yesterday at the time of this recording, but it seems like we're just about there where mainstream is really now cognizant and conscious of crypto and Bitcoin. But the mainstream does not know a lot about the history of how we got here. And I think one of the mm -hmm. stories that they need to be very aware of is Mt. Gox. Now, if you can mm -hmm. tell us a little bit about the synopsis of Ultimate Catastrophe, um, why you wrote this book and uh, what it's about. I mean, I, I'm very excited myself to maybe go pick up a copy. Uh, why don't you tell us a little bit about this? Sure. So how I got into it, I actually um, hadn't planned to write a book about Mt. Gox at all. I, I knew about it. As I said, I got into crypto in 2017. So I knew about it only three years after it after it collapsed by that point. And um, and I actually I actually found out more about it through the work I've been doing um, through the, the Craig Wright uh, podcast and the Craig Wright mm -hmm. debunking that I've been doing for the past few years. And he's got a bit of a connection to that. And as I looked into that side of things, looked into it more and more, I realized that in between the time of it collapsing in 2014 and today, everything that's come out has been quite sporadic. It's been a few articles here. You've had court cases and stuff and bits and pieces, but it's all been a bit piecemeal and there's never been a full story. Um, and so I thought, well, you know, there, there kind of needs to be a, a full story, really. And and I looked oh, into it. And without just, diving in too much for the story, mm. uh, just for our listeners, because I think a lot of them probably have never heard of Mt. Gox before. I mean, maybe mm. you can just start with the quick synopsis as, I mean, what is Mt. Gox? Why should people care about Mt. Gox? So Mt. Gox at the time, so you're talking 2011 to 2014, was the biggest Bitcoin exchange in the world. At, mm -hmm. at points at a high point, it was handling something like 90 percent of all the Bitcoin traffic in the world at that time for, for a short while. It was just the first mainstream, if you like, but not not mainstream as far as the public is concerned, but as far as the Bitcoin public was concerned, the mm -hmm. first mainstream exchange that people would go to. It was the first too big to fail Bitcoin exchange. We've had many that have come and gone since then. But that's why it's so synonymous uh, and it's still remembered today is because of the size of it. You know, everyone in Bitcoin was on was on Mt. Gox and it was 
So it was it was too big to fail. It was the Titanic of Bitcoin exchanges at the time. And it ended up as badly as the Titanic as well. So what happened um, at a high level uh, with Mt. Gox and why was it the titanic moment for the early Bitcoin community? So what a lot of people don't realize is the people that know about Mt. Gox, they either know lots about it, um, which is great, or they know bits about it or they know nothing about it. And the people that know bits about it know, oh, it was hacked. You know, they lost a lot of Bitcoin. That's yeah, we, we know that. But what's really interesting is, is the fact that it wasn't just one hack. Like most exchanges now, one hack can sort of bring them down. But this was multiple hacks. It has multiple hacks over the years. And the last one that killed it was a two and a half year long hack um, without going into, without giving too much away. They, the hackers stole uh, the hot wallet and were able to just siphon off Bitcoin that was coming in for two and a half years. So that, in itself is a pretty incredible thing. But the fact that the guy in charge of it, Mark Carpelis, apparently didn't know it was leaking 800,000 plus Bitcoin over three years is the bit that is kind of kind of surprises people when they learn about that for the first time. And is the reason why many people still don't believe him today, because they, they cannot believe that someone can't know that's going on under their nose. Mm. And that's why. Another reason why I wanted to delve into it a lot was to see if we could work out, well, did he know? Didn't he know? What do we know about that side of things? So when it when it fell, um, it was it, it could have been the death knell for Bitcoin because it was what most people knew Bitcoin to be. It was that and Silk Road. So if you think about right. it, if you've got Silk Road is what people know Bitcoin for for years and years. And then three years after Silk Road comes along, they then know Bitcoin for some massive theft of half a billion dollars so when you have have those two things yeah you have the money laundering the drug trafficking the human trafficking Mm. everything that was going on allegedly with silk road um and then uh, you couple that with okay it's a half a billion dollar theft eight hundred thousand bitcoin which okay half a billion eight hundred thousand bitcoin back then that's not much that's a huge piece of the market cap but i mean off the top of my head what would eight hundred thousand bitcoin be today it would be what, $24 billion, I think, roughly? Yeah, around that. Bit, mm-hmm. Maybe $24 billion worth of Bitcoin in today's value. That's an mm. insane and incredible amount of money. Yeah, and that's why, what's, in your, what's interesting is it's, you know, it's 10 years. Another reason why I chose to write it, because it's the anniversary of its collapse is coming up. So 10 years, mm-hmm. next February, will be 10 years since it collapsed. And the fact that it was 10 years ago, the Bitcoin price was 400 and something dollars when it, when it collapsed. And despite 10 years and despite Bitcoin's price going from $400 to what, 20, you know, 30, 30,000 as we are today, approximately, it's still, I think, the third biggest hack by contemporary value <laughs> 10 yeah. years later. And that when you understand that, that just shows the scale of it, you know. Well, especially, I mean, what would the market cap of Bitcoin have been at that time? Um, it couldn't have been more than remember, 10 billion. To be honest. Um, I can't remember. It's um, I've got all these statistics in the book, but I've been dealing with so many that off the top of my head, I can't remember what the figure would be. It, it, it catastrophic uh, when you consider mm. the scale of what Bitcoin was at that time relative to where it is today. I mean, Bitcoin mm. is worth a couple hundred billion. So, okay, fine. If we want to put it into numbers, half a billion doesn't sound much, but we got to remember these were the infant years of Bitcoin. Mm. Uh, Bitcoin really was I mean, the concept of Bitcoin as this peer to peer e-money hadn't even yet 
really materialized outside of the real initial adopters. I mean, at this point in time, the Bitcoin faucet was still on and <laughs> people don't even know or like None. 99% of people in crypto don't even know what that Bitcoin faucet was. This is how mm -hmm. long ago this was. Um, mm -hmm. So it's amazing to hear uh, that you're writing a book like this. I mean, we've mm -hmm. been dealing in the last year with a hell of a lot of additional controversies, uh, especially in the crypto space. Um, particularly related to uh, FTX and SBF Alameda, uh, Three Arrows Capital, etc. Mm -hmm. Now, whenever we look at these crypto hacks, these crypto faults, what I always try to remind everybody is like, look, the blockchain and crypto itself, it can't be hacked, um, mm -hmm. especially Bitcoin. I mean, maybe other layer ones, we've seen examples of this, but I mean, Bitcoin itself, as far as we're aware today and Maybe quantum computing becomes a risk, but I mean, Bitcoin can up its grade itself at some point in the future if and when that does happen. But if quantum mm -hmm. computing becomes a reality, banks are going to go down long before Bitcoin does. We're in a <laughs> different world. We're in a different world of hurt if that truly <laughs> yeah, really becomes yeah, a reality. Yeah. Right? Um, yes. But I always point to the fact that it's not crypto that's at fault here. And I don't think it was Bitcoin that was at fault with Mt. Gox, the way that some people portray it. It's... Mm -hmm over centralization. It's centralized powers because centralization around an exchange custodian like Mt. Gox, centralization with severe lack of governance around FTX and SBF, centralization around mm -hmm. under collateralized, over leveraged funds like 3AC is the real problem. Now, does crypto mm -hmm. enable that? Yes. But I don't think that these, I don't think that crypto is necessarily at fault. And I think a lot of people don't necessarily understand that, particularly politicians. So, I mean, as an author, what type of messaging do you feel that you need to be putting out there? Or what type of education do you try to put out there to get that message across? It's, it's tricky because you are you're preaching to people who maybe don't realize that they need uh, a decentralized form of currency, because this, this is what I've always said is that. You, you talked earlier about we're at this tipping point of adoption. I agree with you. We are, we are very, very close to that point. But I, I think the big stumbling block is that a lot of people, um, they don't appreciate, they don't appreciate what Bitcoin can offer. And I'm, I'm talking, I'm saying Bitcoin because we know that's the only truly decentralized coin. I'm, I'm not a Bitcoin right. maximalist. You know, I, I, I speak objectively. Some of them have got different benefits, but we know what the benefits of Bitcoin itself are. And, it needs to be crypto as a whole needs to be um, equally as easy to use and uh, as easy to use on a daily basis as regular fiat currencies, because mm -hmm. people don't realize that, um, that the benefits that decentralization can bring. So until we have kind of crossed that threshold of, you know, explaining to people, yeah, but do, do you see the problem with the money that you use every day? Because people don't see the problem with the money that they use every day, because we are educated to not ask questions about the money we use every day. And it wasn't until I got into Bitcoin in 2017 that I realized really what money truly is. And it's not until we self-educate uh, or mm. we have someone that happens to know something that they, and they, they teach us in an interesting way that we realized what, what doesn't back fiat currency. And I think until people want to learn about these kind of things, there's going to be that, that gap because you can try and tell people what Bitcoin can do, but unless they recognize the problem themselves, they won't really see what the benefits are for themselves. So what I try and do in my, my daily job as a crypto writer and through the, through the, through the book. I mean, I think well, it even goes a step yeah. further. I don't think um, 
I mean, we'll get to the, uh, what you do as a crypto writer in a second, but a point I would mm -hmm. make here, I don't think people, even if they're cognizant of the problems, and I think people are starting to wake up to the issues that we have with the US dollar, with fiat mm -hmm. currency, I, and just generally speaking, I think people are relatively aware, but until there's a sense of urgency to make a change, and that sense of urgency can only come when there's an actual massive pain point, when the, uh, when the, it's become too intolerable to use mm. the dollar, when it's become too intolerable from an inflationary standpoint or a devaluation standpoint, people aren't going to be willing to make a change, which is nice. horrifying, at least from my perspective, to think about because that means these people, unless they're willing to make that change before, they're just going to suffer the consequences of not necessarily their ignorance, but maybe their blissful stubbornness. Um, <laughs> I don't know. That's a, maybe a new uh, term that I've coined right there. But I mean, <laughs> blissful stubbornness is going to drive people into the poorhouse, unfortunately. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, until they need until they need to make a change, as you say, they they won't because it's more people don't want to uproot a, a really vital part of their lives unless it's absolutely necessary. So, you know, until, until there's riots in the streets, we won't see a change because obviously the, the government is, is the one that's in control of, of the, the, the populace. They're the one that's in control of the money. So they are not going to let this go without a fight, obviously. So right. uh, that's, that's why I can see it getting to, a point of adoption, but not past a certain point, because you know I, I'm not going to go and try and convince my mum to use uh, to use crypto because she's got no need for it. She doesn't see the value in it. She, it's going to be more complicated for her to use than a regular bank. So I know she's a lost cause. I, I, I got my mom set up with a Coinbase account, and I think the only thing that she's been able to do with it was like win her five hundred or not five hundred dollars, like five dollars of <laughs> B cash, um, and yeah. she was really excited about that. But yeah. It, it it's just uh, conceptually the understanding of what money is and what Bitcoin is or even Ethereum and everything else. I mean, mm -hmm. the generational gap just doesn't understand it. But it, it links back to the whole blockchain thing, because obviously being in being in having been in crypto since 2017, I was there for the, the blockchain hype. And so everything was get it on a blockchain, get it on a blockchain. And no one stopped to think, do we need a blockchain for this? And that was what I realized. That was my entry into this world. So I realized that actually, no, most things don't need a blockchain. Spreadsheet is absolutely fine. And it's that it's that similar principle, but with, with different things like DeFi, with NFTs yep. and all the rest of it. It's a case of, is it needed? Like Wanted is great because wanted it gets people money if they can trade it well. But needed is a whole different ballgame when it comes to adoption. So I always liken this to um, Ian Malcolm from Jurassic Park. I mean, whenever I get a uh, pitch deck from different startups, I always go like, okay, is this a group? I mean, so a lot of the people in crypto, they're just building shit for the sake of building it without actually asking, should they? Uh, mm. Just because everything should go on a blockchain, or at least they believe everything should go on a blockchain. If you had talked to me maybe five, six years ago, I was open to that concept. I'm not anymore. Um, mm -hmm. Do I believe... Everything can and will be tokenized. Yes, that's just so stupidly inevitable for me that all financial instruments will get there, that I believe that will happen. But do we need to have everything on a blockchain? I don't necessarily think so. Um, do we need to have everything on Bitcoin? I'm a little bit more open to that, I think. But I mean, for me, it's kind of like the Ian Malcolm thing. Just because you can build it doesn't mean that you should. I mean, mm -hmm. Dinosaur went on a rampage because they built the stupid things. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's true. And and it's going to take maybe we need a few cycles, meaning with all the different 
all the different machinations of, of, of blockchain and, and Bitcoin and crypto to play out before we actually settle on what we're going to use? Because we, we won't know what the really good products are until maybe another five to 10 years from now when we're using them every day. The, the two or three yeah. that survive are the ones we're using. I mean, they may not have even have been invented yet. The, 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 the killer app for crypto probably hasn't been invented yet in, in, in many cases. But I'm like you, the tokenization, I love that idea. I mean, I think it was... Is it two weeks ago that JP Morgan did their first uh, tokenized asset transfer? Or, or I forget. Or, um, they did, some, yeah. Um, so it, yeah. It, was an, it was an intra-bank transfer. Uh, I mean, it, I don't think it was the JPM coin. It was something else that they were doing. No, it was, it was a, a whole different – it was an Onyx. Onyx, wasn't it? Was yes, Onyx that's right. Blockchain. Yeah. So, yeah. again, that's, that's, that's useful for banks because it, it saves them money, but it's not, it's not decentralized. So – <laughs> we've helped them out, but we haven't helped them out. <laughs> haven't helped ourselves out. <laughs> uh, this is kind of one thing that, I mean, it, it, it's kind of a bit of a, I don't want to say a paradox. I'm uh, blanking on the word right now. Um, maybe it could be ironic to a certain extent, but I mean, the creation of a completely open source, transparent financial e-cash is being used as the antithesis of what Bitcoin initially intended itself to be in the form of CBDCs. I mean, at the end of the day, the technology that has been created and enhanced over the last decade or so can and will be used as the ultimate tool of financial tyranny in CBDCs. I mean, the, the cypherpunks ended up inevitably creating the tool of what could be their own demise, which is really kind of funny mm -hmm. when you start to think about it. Yeah, that, that's the thing that um, I, I wouldn't say it keeps me up at night, but I do worry in sort of five, 10 years where we are with that. Um, the, 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 the central bank currencies is something that maybe we should have foreseen, um, but I, I don't know who I don't know who did back five, five, 10 years ago. I'm not sure anybody was saying just look out, guys, you know, they, they, they could use this <laughs> against you. Um, but, yeah, we've already seen it in China and a couple of other countries. It's um, it's coming and. Yeah, it's going to be very. It's going to be a hard sell for them. Um, but again, I think because people don't realise, as we said earlier, because people don't realise the, the problems with the existing currency system, yeah. they won't necessarily realise the dangers inherent within this. Because there's not going to be only the only people like yourselves and like myself who who know what lies underneath this and know what their ultimate goals are. I mean, I'm not a conspiracy theorist. You don't have to be a conspiracy theorist to know this is bad news. Um, yeah. We're the ones that are going to be trying to kind of, you know, put our hands up and say, this isn't a great idea. Don't use it. But the masses, if it's more convenient than a regular bank transfer, of course, they'll use it. And that's the problem, because I think CBDC, mm. unless I mean, I think the reason I mean, I remember when I really first got into crypto, maybe seven, eight years ago, we had conversations around tokenized money. Um, but the concept of a CBDC that nobody was really talking about it yet. Mm. Five years ago, I remember I was uh, at the Frankfurt School of Finance and Management. And I think that's the first time that I heard that word. Um, I mean, that's where I actually did my MBA program and they have a blockchain research center there. And that was the first time, maybe five, six years ago, that I came in touch with the term CBDC. And at first I went, okay, you know what? That doesn't sound like a horrible idea. Uh, it could actually loosen a lot of friction between intra-bank Settlements. Um, mm -hmm. I mean, if you know anything about sending large bank wires, uh, especially between banks, um, or even if we just talk about M1 level money between a central bank and its member banks, 
there's a massive amount of friction that if you have a CBDC, it saves a substantial amount. I mean, billions upon billions of dollars of fees would be saved a year on an annual basis with a CBDC. So my first thought was, okay, that's actually a really good idea. We should definitely do that. And then the concept of programmable money starts being talked about maybe two or three years ago. The idea that you can have money that can be programmed for certain things. And you even hear politicians talk about this today, that Mm. money can be programmed by the government to only be allowed for certain purchases. Money can be programmed by the government that you're only allowed to purchase, let's call it one kilogram of meat per week. And then you've met your quota. You can no longer buy more meat. Money can be used to, or uh, money can be programmed that you're only allowed to buy $50 worth of gas that week. And that's the maximum that you will be allowed to travel that week because your money will no longer be allowed to purchase more gas. That is horrifying to me. And I do think that the initial concept of a CBDC from an intrabank friction removal tool makes a lot of sense. Mm-hmm. You apply the programmability that Ethereum and other layer ones have now been able to be building into their own protocols and you build that into a CBDC, that's where I get horrified. And unlike you, I actually do stay awake at night thinking about what that future might be um, mm. because it's horrifying to think about. Yeah. And it doesn't take, it doesn't take a, um, a dastardly regime to do that. You know, like the likes of China, North Korea, though, Russia, maybe those kind of places, they, they will kind of foist it upon their citizens without a moment's thought. Whereas the other Western, let's say, let's say more progressive in theory, uh, progressive yep. societies, progressive cultures, it will be a bit more insidious because they can't just say, right, we're swapping cash for this now. They will introduce it as a trial, then they'll run it alongside, then they'll say, oh, it's doing a lot better than cash. Is cash use is dropping, so we'll just get rid of cash. It will be, be a slow burn over the years, and, and they'll make it sound like they're doing us a favor. <laughs> so I've had a couple of conversations about this, and uh, I'm going to have to apologize to our listeners for now going down the CBD rabbit hole once again. But <laughs> I mean... I think that they could implement this in a couple of different ways, because I agree with you. It's not just going to be overnight unless they do this. You can have capture through applications on your phone. So if your wallet on your, I mean, your wallet's going to be on your phone inevitably. That's just the Mm -hmm. easiest, most simple way to implement this. Uh, But you can demand Amazon that Amazon, hey, you're going to have to start accepting CBDCs as payment. And hey, we'll incentivize you by giving you tax reduction on sales uh, that you make that you accept in CBDC. And Amazon will jump at the bit for that. Even if it's a 1% reduction in sales tax that they're going to be able to pocket, I mean, that's billions of dollars for an Amazon. Okay, so now Amazon's full CBDC. Uh, JP Morgan or TD Bank. I use uh, TD Bank personally, um, Toronto Dominion. You tell them, hey, uh, we're going to uh, add fees onto your intra-bank settlements as a member bank unless you have your users embrace CBDC and disseminate that through your platform. Money's already digital. It's only going to take them a few months of tinkering with their platform to be able to transition everything from their already digital money to a mm-hmm. CBDC. And what's going to be worse, and I'm pretty convinced this will happen, you will have politicians push for this by saying, if you download the wallet of the US dollars, Federal Reserve CBDC, you're going to get your $1,000. The same way that they gave away, what, $1,200 and $1,800 as the COVID helicopter money. 
They'll do the same thing. Download the wallet and we'll give you $500. And everybody's going to do it because it's free yeah, money. Free money. <laughs> and I mean, I remember when I was a little boy, I asked my dad, I was maybe like eight or nine. Um, and I forget what election it was. It was so long ago. Uh, it might've been like George Bush versus John Kerry. I was like, I asked my dad stupidly and naively as an eight or nine year old, why doesn't one of them just promise to give everybody a thousand dollars that votes for them? Sadly, we're basically in that political reality. They're doing it through different subsidies. They're doing it with different ways. They'll do it through a CBDC. But I genuinely believe we're pretty much there. And the masses are stupid enough to buy it. Yeah, because it's, um, we again, it goes back to education. We're not taught to question money um, through the whole educational system for obvious reasons. And it's not until you maybe something, you read something online or, or you, hear, you hear a few words spoken that triggers you and you think, oh, hang on a second. And then you, you do a bit of digging yourself. So, but unless you do the research yourself from the from the proper sources, you won't you won't learn about these things, you know, because they, they I wouldn't say they're trying to hide this information, but they don't go out of their way to let you know what your choices are. And now we have for the first time more choice. It's really kind of a, a lie of omission to a certain extent, mm -hmm. because I mean, I was never taught what money is. No when I did my accounting and finance degrees. I was never taught what money is when I was in high school. Like, sure, I was taught how to balance a checkbook, but even nowadays, students in high school, especially underprivileged areas, they're not even taught these things. I mean, mm. kids in high school in urban areas, they don't even know what a stock is more often mm. than not by the time that they graduate. Um, other than maybe there's a TikTok influencer that they saw it, but they don't get this stuff in school. You mm. don't get it at university because there's just this underlying fundamental assumption that the dollar is money. And then every piece of academia, and I had a finance and accounting degree, but every piece of academia that I went through, every college class, every accounting class, intermediate, advanced accounting, et cetera, the underlying predicated truth was the dollar is money. Don't ask any questions about it. Mm -hmm. And that wasn't even actually said. So it's not mm -hmm. even, it's not even said that a question could be asked. Mm. And I think maybe that's the lie of omission. So how do people like yourself, how can you help get that message out there that there are questions that can and should be asked? And here's the answers that you might find. It's a tough one because, I mean, you can only, the only thing you can do really is whatever your method of doing it is to make it interesting and mm -hmm. um, get kind of try and get the right platform. But, you know, the, the higher up the kind of media echelon you get, the less likely you are to be afforded the opportunity of asking these questions in the first place. So there's always going to be that sort of you're always going to hit a ceiling when you're when you're telling people to question the very fabric of, of the economy they've relied on for so long. It already sounds a bit tinfoil hat just just to say it. And then if you've got people that have been not not programmed, but it's essentially programmed, I guess, to a point from their from their birth to believe in a certain way. And to, like you say, to not even know there's a question to be asked. How do you reach those people? Because, you know, you're not mm -hmm. going to reach them through mainstream uh, outlets because they, those aren't the outlets where these things, where these questions get asked. So you have to, I mean, from, from my point of view, all I can do is, is use the platform that I've 
been given, which is the, the, the crypto outlet that I write for, to, to push the narrative in a non-aggressive way, to push it in like a, a, a way that is hopefully bring hopefully makes people ask questions and intrigues people to find more out themselves and to raise my children to ask these questions. And that's all we can really do. If we all have, if we all have children, the only thing we can do is to try and teach them that it's okay to ask these questions because only by doing that can we foster mm -hmm. this, this, this desire to actually, yeah. I mean, I, I think it's, I think it's starting now to a point in many areas um, in, in politics, especially to say, well, no, I, this may have been the way for hundreds of years, but I don't like it. And there's, there's, it's, we're starting to see a few cracks of things like that. So hopefully money is the next thing, especially with the inflation going through the, through the roof as it is. I mean, I'm surprised mm. there's not riots in the streets. I don't know what it will take to get people writing in the streets. I'm not sure, but only once that sort of thing happens, will people start investigating for themselves. And hopefully that's when they come to people like myself and more, more erudite, more intelligent people than me um, to, to find these things out. So I don't think it's a matter of intelligence. I do think the average individual is intelligent. Um, and you kind of made it the point it's indoctrination. Um, I don't know. I don't know if I necessarily want to call it that, even though on the surface, it does look like it. Mm. Um, I think it's a larger problem just with the education system in general. I mean, when we talk about the age of enlightenment, we talk about the Renaissance periods of new age thinking. Um, philosophers, they never really had answers, Greek or Roman philosophers. They asked questions and then they would have round circle conversations around different ideology, uh, ideological ways to answer these questions. Mm -hmm. um, in effect, like Aristotle, um, Socrates, they weren't necessarily imparting knowledge to their students, to their peers. They were challenging them to ask questions and then rationalize what that answer may be. Mm -hmm. So they were challenging them to think critically. When you compare and contrast that to the way education is today, I mean, I remember <laughs> when I was a kid, you sit down mm -hmm. and you memorize the multiplication tables. Um, and every night, like, okay, tonight's the three multiplication tables. Tomorrow's the four. We had like the hooked on phonics thing as a kid. Okay, fine. You're not taught why the English language is a certain way. You're not taught why sentence structure is that way. You just got to memorize what a past participle is, memorize how <laughs> to use it, and don't ask any goddamn questions, right? Mm. Um, you're taught that, I mean, I remember calculus, and God, I was horrible at calculus. Okay, yeah, memorize so these formulas, memorize the formula to uh, solve for the area underneath a curve. Don't ask why we're doing that. Just fucking memorize it, and then hopefully you pass the test. That's mm. it. Yeah. There's no concept of challenging people to think critically and ask questions in today's academia. Mm. The only time that I can remember in my academic career where this happened was actually when I did my MBA. Because an MBA, if you've ever done one, I mean, sure, you have exams, you have to study a little bit. I mean, that's just a part of any uh, academic course. But MBAs are really presenting case studies around certain topic areas, whether it be marketing related, branding related, um, intercompany uh, operable accounting related. But you're presented case studies. Everybody reads it. And then we have a conversation in the class over if best practices were adhered to, if there's another way to do things. Um, 
the decision that was made 10 years ago by X company, was it the right decision? Was it the wrong decision? And what are the reasons therein? Mm. That's the only time that I ever was exposed to that type of education. And I think that that was far and away the most beneficial for me personally from an academic standpoint. But we don't see that anymore. Mm. Um, so, I mean, I, I don't know if I have a question for you therein, but I mean, like what <laughs> what is needed to get us back to critically thinking and asking the right questions? How do we get people to be ready to ask the right questions? Stop that focus on standardized testing. Yeah. Ah, there, there, Matt finally chimes in. <laughs> I've been trying, sorry, I've been trying to chime in. I just, I really, I don't know what was going on, but yeah, I, the, uh, I think the issue here, and I agree with you. I don't think kids have the ability, at least kids, but I think by the time you get to an MBA program, it's probably already too late to start that knowledge because the people that are in MBA programs, if you think about it, are the people that have already succeeded in school, gotten to that sort of level of. I hate to use the word like privilege because it's earned, but that economic like level of achievement that a lot of kids that need to be educated need to ask these questions about monetary like value don't have the ability to ask that early on. Does that make sense? I mean, I certainly yeah. think so. Yeah, and I think a lot of it is to do with your nature as a human being. Because I remember, I'm, I'm not a religious a religious person at all, but I was sent to Sunday school because my parents wanted a Sunday morning off just to do whatever. So I was packed off to Sunday school, which is not what, you know, Sunday church for kids, basically. I'm not quite sure what you guys call it over there. And I remember sitting thinking, I, I'm not buying this. I, I don't, there is something not right here. I, I'm, don't, I'm not believing what I'm being told here. But again, I could not ask questions because if you ask a question, yeah. it, you know, you're, you're, you're told not to basically. And so from a very young age, I was always, I would always have that sort of mindset. And I'm, I guess, lucky that I had that mindset throughout my youth. And like you, Pat, when I got to university, it was that was the first time that I actually was able to have discussions in in an academic setting, rather than, like you say, as you say, sit down, learn this, spit it out for a test. It was actually we'll present you with this information, we'll discuss it, we'll ask questions. What do you think of this? Is that right? Is that wrong? And it was so refreshing to be able to explore things, you know, at that point. But that's not the age of 18. It's too late. It's too late. Well, so I think it's gone backwards, right? Because it probably used to be um, thousands of years ago that young scholars, and I don't know what would be considered young scholar back then, but I mean, I imagine it has to be early teenage years that a lot of people have these ideas implanted in their head. You need to be asking these questions and having critical thought-provoking conversations to rationalize an answer, right? Fast forward a little bit. Okay, maybe that only starts to happen at the high school level. So now these are young adults, 18, 19 years old. Uh, fast forward another couple of hundred years. And it happens at the new higher education level, at universities, at colleges. Nowadays, I don't think it's happening at universities and colleges at the bachelor's degree level. I, I mean, I'm looking back on my own bachelor's degree. That I mean, this is 15 years ago. Uh, when did I graduate? 11? Um, okay, so uh, 12 years ago. That conversation was never happening. It was only at the MBA, which at that point is additional higher level of education, that I was even exposed to that. Mm. So now you have not only just young kids that are not trained in these ways, that are not thinking critically for themselves, it's young adults and it's young professionals even mm. people in their twenties and thirties. And then they just go into a corporate job or they go into whatever it is they go into. And then they're just indoctrinated with whatever they need to do to succeed at their own, 
I mean, I don't want to call it a meaningless job. There's meaning in a lot of jobs, but there's no fulfillment in that anymore. Um, it's the commoditization of school and making education more of a business than a than an actual intellectual venture of going to try and learn. Everybody basically goes to secure a, a degree as a means to you know an end instead of going for the pursuit of I would think true education, where education is being able to think critically and form your own opinions based on solid evidence versus just going there. And at least for me, I know that because I'm guilty, a number one of doing that, trying to uh, secure that bag. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. uh, I know what you mean. And I mean, Mark, you brought up a very good point. I mean, um, I mean, I don't consider myself uh, religious by any means anymore. Um, I like to think that I'm open to the idea of religion. I think that there's something that connects all of us spiritually. But I was in 12 years of Catholic school. Uh, when I was a kid, I did eight years at a Catholic grade school, uh, four years at a Catholic high school. When I was coming out of grade school, if you had asked me, was Noah's Ark real? Did Jesus uh, actually do all those miracles? I would have said, yeah, absolutely. And would have never batted us that and I doing that. And then when I got to Catholic high school and I went to an Augustinian school um, and it was taught in the traditions of St. Augustus. And we were asked to think a little bit more critically about this. Now these were not stories to be taken verbatim, but rather stories that were more metaphors, that maybe these miracles didn't happen, but the idea that that miracle did happen and what it means for a person of faith, there's power in that. Mm -hmm. And that's kind of where like, okay, I was like, all right, well, I think I'm out on this religion, this religious thing, but I mean, there's still power, I think in those stories to a certain extent. And if you, and if people find faith in that, I mean, power to them. Um, mm -hmm. I think all people need something. And I think religion filled that hole for hundreds of thousands or hundreds, if not thousands of years. And now we're in a world where there is no religion and people are finding their own religions in politics and other certain things leading to the divide that we're currently seeing. I mean, you even see it to a certain extent in the tribalism in crypto. I was just going to say, if you hadn't made that point, I was going to. It, that's what fascinates me is that I, I realized when I when I fell down this rabbit hole 2017, I wasn't prepared for the um, the partisanship that people have around certain certain coins. And it's only got worse since since the years have gone and since more coins have come along. But I um okay, I, I get it. People are very firm in in the ideologies behind certain coins um but yeah. i don't i don't understand how people can go can get so fervently passionate about about these things i'm like okay i mean if it's your life's work then potentially if you are satoshi nakamoto then fair enough but even he has lost interest in bitcoin you know we we, we suppose um so i've i wasn't prepared for just how strong people are on on certain coins and even things like the whole, say, let's say Bitcoin versus Ethereum, for example, they solve yeah. two completely different problems. And I do not see how um, it, it's like it's like chalk and cheese. They, they serve different things. You can't write on a, on, a, on a blackboard with cheese and you can't eat chalk. So why are we butting heads over this? I mean, so I, I agree with you, but I mean, at the uh, so I'm not a Bitcoin maximalist. Bitcoin speaks to me as a libertarian on a more fundamental level than Ethereum does. Mm. But I see value in Ethereum. I see merit in Ethereum. Ethereum today unlocks levels of utility and unlocks tokenization in a way that Bitcoin currently does not. Will Bitcoin get there? 
I mean, I hope so. I think that it can with layer two solutions that are being built, but even most of the layer two solutions sacrifice elements of uh, security and decentralization to enable that utility and enable that scalability. It's just the blockchain trilemma. There's no way around it, right? Mm -hmm. uh, but on the Ethereum side, hey, it's already there. And there might be wonderful developments that continue to evolve in the Ethereum community and in other layer one communities. And I don't understand why we are so uh, tribalistic when at the end of the day, A, a lot of these blockchains are not trying to solve the same problems. It's a misnomer mm -hmm. to say that they do. And B, we are all still trying to achieve the same outcomes, maybe not from a functional perspective, but the idea of having inclusive financial ecosystems that are censorship resistant, I think is true across any singular uh, crypto and Bitcoin community. Mm. And it, it seems to me that the arguments just go around in circles. There's, no, there's very little that new comes out of it, unless some brand new project comes out that blows them out of the water. The arguments are always the same. So you go on Twitter, it's the same arguments back and forth and back and forth. I mean, the, you know, the Bitcoin has got out in, since 2009 it came out, Ethereum's 2013, 2015. They've been going for a long time, and it's the same yep. arguments back and forth and back and forth. And that's why I'm, I'm surprised <laughs> to a point that they're still going. But I suppose new people coming into the space all the time, maybe that's it. Maybe new people come in and they bring they bring more fervency to it, if that's a word. I'm not sure. But, yeah, I, I, I'm surprised that the same debates are being had all these years later. So this is a question that I always pose to people. I mean, I do think that it would be ignorant for us right now to say blockchain in the way that it currently exists or the way that we think about it, whether it be from an Ethereum perspective, Bitcoin perspective, or a privatized perspective, the idea that this is the end-all, be-all inevitability of transfer of value technology, I think is a bit naive. Mm -hmm. We cannot possibly comprehend. I mean, just like in 2000, I don't think many people could comprehend that there could be technology that was decentralized, censorship resistant, and enabled peer-to-peer e-cash the way Bitcoin did. Mm -hmm. I don't think in 2009, people, when Bitcoin goes out, were thinking that there could be a technology that leverages that new base, the blockchain. I mean, granted, Bitcoin wasn't the first blockchain, but you get the idea. Um, but that leverages that now relative cypherpunk mainstream technology to enable Turing complete smart contracts. No, but hey, guess what? Ethereum does it. For us to think that the way that this technology exists today is the end-all be-all and it's not going to evolve and maybe, just maybe, and this is, I'm going to get ridiculed by everybody in the crypto community for saying so, <laughs> there might be a technology that comes along in the next 10 years that makes all of this completely irrelevant. Mm. It's very naive of us to think that that might not happen. Mm -hmm. Do you think the crypto community or the Bitcoin or the Ethereum, or let's just think of it as one community together, could ever fathom that they would ever transfer uh, value from Bitcoin, Ethereum to whatever that new technology might be, even if it is fundamentally superior. I think people would still be so entrenched. A lot of people would still be so entrenched in what they believe in. Let's, let's, let's put it in those terms. <laughs> that they would yep. find any argument they could not not to use it. it. Even if it was, 
you know, factually, obviously, head and shoulders, if it combines the best elements of, of let's say, the, the ultimate coin comes out that combines all the best elements of everything out there. It's decentralized. It's a smart contract platform. It's a, it's a stable coin, whatever you want it to be. It's, it, it's that. They would still find reasons not to use it and not to believe in it because I think people are still, a lot of people are still so wedded to what they are, what they have been wedded to for years that they would still find and a way to not use it. So I 100% think that that's exactly what's going to happen. Bitcoiners are not going to go anywhere. Um, Ethereum uh, community is not going to go anywhere. Crypto as it is today is not going to go anywhere. And I'm not saying this will happen. It very well may not. I just think mm. it's naive to think that it may not happen. But when we get into that world, what makes Bitcoiners in the crypto community any different than the people in fiat today? It, it doesn't. And this is why... This is why I, I don't mind being someone that sits on the outside because I have no preferred uh, cryptocurrency. I, I, I don't, you know, there, is, there are benefits to all of them. I'll use whichever one I think is, is the best that I need to use. Like I pay a lot of my, my contractors, the guys that do some writing work for me, I pay them in, uh, in Tether because they want to take Tether and it goes across yeah. the Tron blockchain because the Tron blockchain is cheaper. Everybody knows Tron's a heap of crap, but... It does the job I need it to do when I need to send USDT to people. And I do not care. I'll happily say that I use yeah. it because it works for me at the time. Um, so, you know, and I, I, that's that's me. And that's a lot of people are like that. I think it is a spectrum. And some people will be totally happy to use whatever they want to use, whatever serves their purpose at the time. And others will be dinosaurs that are stuck believing what they want to believe for decades, if, if needs be, even, it's, even if it's to the detriment of themselves, you know. I mean, so what absolutely astounds me because it really is, it's cognitive dissonance. Um, the idea that crypto empowers the sovereignty of the individual, particularly financially. Crypto is all about the cypherpunk libertarian ideal of individual sovereignty. That's at its mm -hmm. core what crypto is supposed to be. Yet, these tribalistic communities shun each other for making the individualistic decisions to work with different blockchains, to work with different layer ones. Mm. It's cognitive dissonance at its absolute finest, and it's completely stifling um, what could be a very collaborative, harmonious crypto environment. Yeah, I, I don't, this is what I don't understand because we've got an opportunity here, if you take the community as a whole, to do really, really great things and we are almost hamstrung by the amount of infighting, by the scams, by the, I, I, I don't know what you would say, by it's, it's the partisanship, the desire to tread on other people to elevate yourself or, or to push other ideas down because you think yours is the best. There is no, there is not a collaborative um, approach taken by many people. And it is, it, it's, it, I think it's holding the space back because if you could have, people from various blockchains working together in some respect, you know, the, the, the major ones, rather than being so head stuck in the sand and focusing only on what they believe and, and, and hang everybody else. We, we could, we could make the breakthroughs that we need to make, but with all the scammers, with all the, with all the infighting, it's, um, it is a real problem. And I don't see it getting any better because there's no reason for it to get any better. I don't know why it's turned out this way. I don't think many people expected it to be so ideologically driven. It's just kind of bizarre mm -hmm. how ideologically driven it is, considering you're talking about technology. But it's happened, and it's going to be hard to shift. 
I think if you figure that out, you'll figure out the problem of the human race in general, because that's the (laughs) same across the board for literally you could change any topic that we're talking about right now. And that is the reason that we suck in anything. It's politics, it's religion, it's everything. The inability that humans, the narcissism that people have, and I do think that this is exacerbated by social media and Mm. digital online radicalization because, I mean, just look at who the biggest influencers in the world are. Um, Not just Bitcoin and crypto, but in general. It's always the people that are the most outspoken and have the most radical opinion because that's what people gravitate towards, even though it might be completely wrong, even though it might be factually incorrect, even though it might be, I mean, just fundamentally immoral, that's where people gravitate towards. Mm. And unfortunately, we're indoctrinating our kids with this because they're getting on social media, they're getting on TikTok, and they're being exposed to it. And it's just creating that level of narcissism internally, that self-serving need to become that digital presence themselves. And that's what's like creating a further divide amongst everybody. Um, I mean, Controversy creates cash, baby. It's what Eric Bischoff <laughs> said in 1999 in the WCW about the WWF wrestling. It's all yeah. related to wrestling. It all comes back to that. I would say it all comes back to sex, but uh, well, what I was just, wrestling. What's the difference? <laughs> I was just going to say there is a gender issue. I do think we are we are a bit screwed because it's what ninety something percent dominated by men. The crypto space. So what would you expect? <laughs> we fight. Yeah, I mean, we, for how? I, I mean, I've met a lot of uh, women in Bitcoin and crypto, but it still is so unbelievably male dominated. Yeah. Um, and we've invested in uh, charities and different groups that have tried uh, to help create more diversity of women in crypto and it just never works um mm-hmm. I, well, why do you think that is <sighs> I, you think I it's just finance in general or just the crypto space because I, I i've seen just you know i work in finance granted not at the same level of you guys i work in like public uh publicly traded companies just in like manufacturing and it's the same exact thing and everywhere i've everywhere i've gone you have male executives um, all the way pretty much down to the staff accountant position. Yeah. So I don't know if it's just a finance-wide thing or I guess accounting is not sexy. I thought I always thought it was. So I don't know. Well, coming from a uh, CPA background, I mean, I'm former PwC. Everybody at PwC knew this. Women are better accountants. Women are better auditors. That's not even controversial to say. And that's I get not- audited every day by my wife. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> I mean, I'm not even trying to uh, be a feminist and empower women by saying that. <clears throat> women, generally speaking, have better attention to detail than men mm-hmm. do. Therefore, they're significantly better auditors. Everybody at PwC knew that. So you're actually seeing a huge shift where you're seeing more and more women accountants and auditors, I think. I don't know if that's the same as it was 10 years ago when I was at PwC, but it certainly was that way back then. Finance, I don't know, because finance is still very much that old boys club. And then when you look at tech and crypto is nothing more than a major crossover between innovative tech and finance. I mean, tech and coding developers are largely male denominated uh, as an industry anyway. Finance is as well, for better or for worse. I'm not saying that's the way that it should be. I'm just saying it's the way that it is. Mm-hmm. And every initiative that every major public company has taken to bring women into finance, to bring women into tech, I'm not saying they failed, um, but they haven't been as successful, I think, as everybody would have wanted them to be. 
And I think that in crypto, we see the exact same thing. On top of that, crypto is very abrasive because it is so tribalistic. Um, crypto is a very loud industry. Crypto is a very extreme industry. You have very polar extremes of these tribes. And I generally think men are more open to conflict than women are. Um, I'm not sure. I mean, if that's- you, you see it in friendships. You see it in friendships because you have like men taking the piss out of each other all the time. Like that's that's how exactly. guys get along is they rib each other mercilessly, but it's all done in good fun, and we all accept it, and this is part of how who we are. And women, and generally speaking, fun, you do it anyway. <laughs> <laughs> and women, generally speaking, don't engage in that kind of those kind of relationships. And as you say, that is pretty much what crypto Twitter is. Um, so it's not really a surprise they don't like engaging in that side of it. And I wonder as well if it's a risk. You can't be passive aggressive in crypto, right? I mean, Mm. uh, there is no passive aggressiveness in crypto. It's a big fuck you uh, sort of (laughs) industry. Yeah. And I I was going to say, I wonder if it's a risk thing as well, because I'm sure I wrote about this a few years ago and I looked at a couple of studies on on the different different risk appetites between men and women. And uh, the men have a greater risk appetite than women have. Yeah. And of course, crypto is one big risk. So I wonder if men like to throw themselves into these risky situations in the hope of making a few hundred or a few thousand dollars, whereas women would be a bit more calculated and would maybe look at things and say, that's not a very, 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 very safe bet. So I wonder if there's if men have that higher appetite for risk and so they're more willing to enter this space. So I do think that there is an element of truth to that. Um, And I do think that that carries over or that has been carried over to crypto from the finance industry. Um, Mm -hmm. I do think that there is, I mean, that element of good old boy uh, from finance. And you're certainly seeing that in crypto as well, too. Um, I'm not saying it's the right thing. And God knows all three of us are going to be canceled by the time that this fucking podcast airs now. (laughs) I say nothing. I'd love to see more women in Bitcoin and crypto. I've been a part of a couple of different initiatives that have tried to do this. A lot of meetups, uh, charitable foundations. I mean, we recently just donated to Bitcoin Data. Um, It's a Kenyan-based group that is doing uh, education for Kenyan women in Bitcoin. Um, Mm -hmm. I mean, Lorraine down there, she's absolutely phenomenal. I love the fact that we got to donate to her. But I mean, even there, there's only so much that she can do. Um, Mm -hmm. I, I, I wish we could... There's got to be a magic solution to get more women into Bitcoin and crypto, but someone smarter than I am is going to have to do that. Yeah, I, I don't know what it would take. Really don't. I mean, it's it's just not <laughs> for, for most of the women that I have met in my life. I know for a fact they would not be interested in yeah. the in engaging in the space, let alone the tech, because that's two different things is is the tech side of things, which is taking something, taking an idea, building it, developing it, launching something, a product. That's one side of it. It's having the vision from the technology side of things. And then there's the social side as well, which is how you deal with the people that you meet in the space. And maybe one, if not both of those sides, hardly any of the women I've met in my life would be remotely interested in doing one or certainly not both of those. No. And at the end of the day, I still think that this at the, it really comes down to an education thing. Um, we need to reach people. Uh, we need to find a way that Bitcoin and crypto can speak to them on a more fundamental level. Mm. And we're starting, I mean, certain personality types, it's already, I mean, I'm a libertarian, so Bitcoin speaks to me on that fundamental level mm-hmm. uh, because it enables that censorship resistant um, individual sovereignty. Uh 
we just need to find a way to message that better or message something else. One of the facets of Bitcoin and crypto is for women, and maybe they'll uh, see the value in it that we saw in it many, many years ago. Uh, anyways, Mark, I really appreciate you uh, joining us on the podcast. It was an absolutely fascinating conversation. As Ultimate Catastrophe, uh, your new book is mm. coming out. I mean, when should we look for this to be on the shelves? Uh, it should be able to order next month. I'm just looking for a couple of final previews at the moment. So final one or two little tweaks, and it should be for sale on Amazon uh, from next month. I'm fantastic. I'm certainly going to be picking up a copy, and I uh, hope that some of our listeners will as well. Thank you for Thanks. joining us, everybody. Yeah, thanks so Thank much. You.